following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. I'm Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. And I hope you brought your Lunchables today because we're going to be here for a while. There is a binder clip on my notes. So, no, it's just it's, I, there's an article I'm going to be citing. So, I had a lot of paper that I had to bring with me. Now, the parable I'm going to talk about today is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a very interesting parable. So some of you may be very familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you grew up in a church environment, uh, you may know this inside and out and probably could come up here and quote it uh, from memory. Uh, With that comes a certain level of difficulty for you to approach the parable anew every time we talk about it, right? So we have the scripture and the scripture has not changed and so sometimes we get very familiar with certain passages and certain concepts in the bible so i'm hopefully going to uh, really sort of plow up new ground for you so that the parable doesn't sort of fall on your own deaf ears now that said some of you may be completely unfamiliar with the parable you didn't grow up in the church context you didn't know what it is you've heard this phrase oh he's such a good samaritan in our culture but you don't really know what that means. And so I hope for you today that in a, in a similar way, or a parallel way, that you would also find new truth in the phrase, a good Samaritan. Now, in our culture, we praise those that are distinguished and those that are kind, right? We have all sorts of awards for people who are excellent at things. You know, the Nobel Prize, the Academy Award, right? You may have heard of the MacArthur Genius Grant, right? So we, we esteem people for their accomplishments. And we also esteem people for their goodness, right? So we have many times in which cities or states will have resolutions or proclamations of such and such will be known as the day, you know, so-and-so's day because they, I don't know, rescued 15 kittens from a storm sewer or something like that, whatever, right? Like they did some good thing and we want to praise them. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan pivots on those two ideas. The idea of what is the accomplishment and what is good. So I'm going to read our passage for us today and then I will pray and we will get started. So I'm going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Then an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus asked him. How do you read it? And the expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the expert asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil and wine, and then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for every expense you for every extra you have spent. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert said, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave us this parable, that you gave us this story which illustrates your truth. 
We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you also gave us yourself as an example of how we should live and as our sacrifice to atone for our sins. We thank you, Father, that you have your will being enacted in this world even today, even as we look around and see so much evil and so much good that you are bringing forth your kingdom. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would, at, you would enlighten our minds and our hearts to your word today. For it's your name we pray. Amen. Now, the parable starts with a discussion between the expert in the law and Jesus. So I need to give a little context of that. The experts in the law are people who have studied what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, primarily the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Probably this is someone who has memorized every verse of that scripture, knows it in and out, has, and uses it to apply to all sorts of daily situations. In fact, that's what we do, or we did in the early church when we wrote the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We took these books and applied them to our lives. And Jesus applied them to our lives. So there's nothing wrong with the discussion that's going on. What I want to point out, however, is some of the interesting parts of what's setting up for the parable of the Good Samaritan. So the expert's first question is, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the question is not a bad question. That's the question each of us has to ask in our lives. Now, the answer may seem very simple to you, living 2,000 years after Jesus' life and ministry and after the writing of the New Testament and after centuries of church history, that what you have to do is nothing because Jesus has paid it all. But at the time, that was not clear. And you have to understand that the law that the expert has become an expert in is how we actually inherit eternal life. We just do it through the life and work of Jesus. The law was not set aside at the cross. The law was fulfilled at the cross. So we are, in a sense, still under the law. That's why, if you wonder, we still read those books because they are still important to us in knowing what we're supposed to do. So the question is still valid for us. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now what's interesting about this is this phrase, inherit eternal life, occurs a couple of different times. So if you are a note taker, get your retractable pencil out and prepare to write down verses, okay? So I'm not gonna read all the verses, I will refer to some of them, some of them I will read today. So how may I, teacher, how may I, what must I do to inherit eternal life is a question that's also asked in a similar story called the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler occurs in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 24, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 25, and Luke chapter 18, 18 through 25, right? So it occurs in all three of what we call the synoptic gospels. And in that one, Jesus asks a similar question. What is written in the law? And he says uh, a very similar answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And he says, and I have kept these all of my life. And Jesus says, well, go sell everything you own and give it to the poor and follow me. The problem is the rich young ruler loves his stuff. He says he's aggrieved saddened because he doesn't want to give up all of his wealth. And he goes away. And Jesus uses that as an example that says, it's very difficult for people who are wealthy to follow me. Not to get off and preach that sermon. But the point about that is there are things in this world that are holding us back. Ultimately, what's holding us back from inheriting eternal life is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is when we violate God's law. My little boy is learning how traffic rules work, right? He's a very good backseat driver. If you need to teach your 16-year-old how to drive, you can borrow his car seat and he can sit in the back and tell them what they're doing wrong. 
And what was very interesting is that recently we were driving here in Norwood and there was a flashing red light. And he knows that a red light means stop. Well, I came and I stopped. And then I went through the red light. He went, Dada, it was a red light. Why did you go through it? Red light means stop. I said, well, the flashing light means that I'm supposed to come to a stop, like it's a stop sign, and then I go through. And he goes, these rules are very hard to understand. <laughs> right? Now, I bring that up because when you go and read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, where most of the laws of the law are given, you probably say to yourself, all of these rules are very hard to understand. And yet the original ruler comes to Jesus, and the expert of the law would have also had a very similar answer. Would come to Jesus and said, I have kept the law my entire life. As far as I know, I have checked the checklist that you have given us. What must I do? Because our hearts tell us that the law was not enough. Because we also know that while we have kept the law, if we have kept the law, we have not kept it fully. And we lack something. We lack a relationship with God. Now, another passage in which uses this, wor- this, this verbiage of inherit eternal life occurs in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 and Galatians 5, 19 through 21. And both of those sections talk about all the people who will not inherit eternal life. It lists a long list of sins, many of which we would agree with and some which we might not. But the Bible is very clear, at least in the writing of Paul, that not everyone does inherit eternal life. That there is a separation that occurs among humans before God. Those that will inherit eternal life and those that will not. Now the question I have for you is, what is your inheritance? Here at Love City, we often talk about the gospel in sort of two parts, the bad news and the good news. The bad news is you do not automatically inherit eternal life. In fact, you have actually very likely, if not certainly, have disinherited yourself already from eternal life. You've not only done that once, you've done that Many, 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 many times. And so the question of the expert here, what must I do to inherit your life, is really guiding us to understand this story in the context of the gospel. It's not just a parable about good behavior or about being a nice person. It's a parable about your soul. Okay, so in that context, let's go to the next part. So the question was, what is written in the law and how do you read it? Now, some of you may know that there are something like 613 individual rules within the Old Testament. That's not including the prophetic adaptations of those rules. So let's say, I don't know, it's 1613 different things that the Hebrew Bible tells you. The Hebrew Bible told the expert in the law, the people tells all generations at all times, this is what you must do to inherit eternal life. And yet the expert in the law answers with only two of them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, which comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. And love your neighbor as yourself, which comes from Leviticus 19, 18. Now, in many places and in other places, they ask, they flip the script and they ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of all? And he gives the exact same two verses, right? So this is, I don't know if we're, if we're cribbing off of Jesus's test paper, this is the right answer, okay? So like, you know, like if (laughs) you went asking the street, you're like, Love the Lord to go with Just copy what Jesus did on his homework, okay? Now, these two laws really are principles, right? Because 
what does it mean to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind? Notice that the parable here does not answer that question. That question was assumed to have already occurred. The expert in law trying to justify himself doesn't need to ask, how do I love God? Because the verse tells you, with everything, right? And it also belies the problem of that bad news. The expert in the law thinks that he already loves God properly. How often do we think that we're good with God? Right? There's the joke in our culture, right? Only God can judge me. I'm not sure that's the one I would have picked. I'd rather have my, my son pick me because I can bribe him with Oreo cookies. Right? Or I pick my culture because I could just figure out what everyone else is doing and they would approve of me as well. I don't want holy, perfect, eternal, loving, just, infinite God to judge me. I'd rather not, thank you. So I always see that's kind of funny. But we already think that that will be true. Oh, I only want God to judge me because what we really mean by that is God loves me. And he's going to be, we're just, we're cool, right? You know, he's like granddad of the sky, right? He's just going to be my friend. He's not going to really require any more than I would have required of myself. So the question there, the first part of the answer already should provoke us to think, do I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind? Does everything in my life look like love for God. Now, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't look like that in my life. I don't have it together. But I don't think it looks like that in your life either. So we get to a second question here. What are our assumptions about our love for God? Do we love God the way that my little boy loves Oreo cookies? which means he thinks that that passing momentary pleasure is what he really wants. When he really needs something he doesn't want. Right? He needs to eat fruits and vegetables and meats and good you know, nutrients, right? But what he wants is what tastes good, what feels good what seems to be pleasant in his life. Are our assumptions about our love for God that God is like the ultimate boyfriend or girlfriend that Taylor Swift never seems to find? Right? I mean, she made an entire career after all these people breaking her heart. And at some point I'm like, girl, that's like 17 boyfriends. I think the problem is not the boyfriends. Now, um, oh, we're, we're, you better have your steel toe boots. I haven't even begun to step on toes yet. But what we mean by that is that example. We want, some, we want God to be someone who will make us happy. And not that we should make God happy. And make God pleased with our lives. All right, we haven't even gotten into the hard part, okay? The Taylor Swift thing was that was just the baby. We were in the shallow end of the pool. It's going deeper, okay? Now we can move into the parable itself, right? So the thing I think is so funny about the way the parable is constructed is that the expert asks Jesus a question. Jesus answers the question with a question. The expert of the law answers that question, and Jesus answers the statement, do this and you will live, which, by the way, is also the context of the two verses in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. If you do these things, you will live. And I kind of imagine in my head that Jesus turns to go on his way because it says, and wanting to justify himself, the expert asked Jesus, oh, but who is my neighbor? I can almost imagine Jesus being like, okay, we're doing this. 
You want me to draw a boundary around what you have to do so that you can check the box in your heart and your mind and you're good with me. And Jesus decides to, in the way he will physically do later, flip the table on the expert's question. Joaquin Jeremiah, in his book, The Parables of Jesus, writes, Jesus is not being asked for a definition of neighbor, but for an indication as to where within the community the limits of duty of love are to be drawn. Who do I have to love? And who don't I have to love? And I feel like Jesus gets really mad at these questions because his whole life is about loving these people he's with. He loves them so much that he gets frustrated with them that they don't see how much he loves them. He says things like, I came and I tried to love you, Jerusalem, and you're trying to kill me. I came to love you, and you won't accept my love. And that's really also what love should be. It should hurt us to love. And the expert law doesn't want to be hurt. He doesn't want to be inconvenienced. He wants to know exactly where the line is. Because he thinks he's got love for God down, and all he needs is to get love for neighbor down. Then he's good, punch card is made, ticket to heaven, ready. Now, Norman Young, who's another, there's a lot of people who write this passage, a very famous passage. He writes, Jesus gave an example of one who acted as neighbor, but the lawyer wanted to know to whom he was to act as neighbor. Jesus spoke subjectively about one who did mercy, and the lawyer asked objectively about one who received mercy. Now, I think that's interesting because that's something we should notice. Again, for those of you who are very familiar with this passage, we read right past that, that what Jesus' answer does is doesn't actually answer the question. It answers the question the lawyer should have asked. The lawyer asked, where is the line? And Jesus says, around you, stupid. Right? We're going to get to that in the passage. Now, Mark Proctor then explains, let me see if I can find exactly where the notes were here. Explains that there is a uh, what's called a polysemy in the answer of Jesus. A polysemy is where something can mean two different meanings, right? Like in the, in the word in, in English, we can talk about like the word cleave, right? Which I always think is really funny. In the old way, we used to do wedding vows. You will cleave from your mother and your father and you will cleave unto your husband or your wife. And you're like, context clues, please. Because you say, use the same word twice in the sentence to mean, I think, two things. Right? The word to cleave means to split off from. That's the one the, from your mother and your father. You will split from your mother and father, like a meat cleaver. And you will cleave, which comes into more modern English as the word cleat, unto your husband and your wife. A cleat is a little, the knob thing on the bottom of sports shoes that allow you to grab the ground so you don't slip. Right? So you're supposed to split and stick in the word cleave. Two opposite meanings in the same word. That's a polysemy. Okay, so here the, the parable is a polysemy because Mark Proctor responding to Norman Young says, no, 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 it's both. Jesus answers that the neighbor is both the subject and the object. That is, we are all neighboring each other all the time. Neighboring is not something that ends, that checks a box. Neighboring is what community looks like. And it possibly wasn't that hard for them to have understood because in the culture of the time, you had all sorts of social obligations to each other. 
We who live here in 21st century America have a very different cultural view of our neighbors. Right? In the ancient world, you pretty much knew everyone you lived by, many times because they were distantly related to you if you lived in a village. Right? Everyone had sort of the same name, because they're all related to each other eventually if you go back in the family tree enough. That's one of the reasons why many marriages in the ancient world were arranged, because you had to make sure you weren't marrying your cousin who was too close to you. Right? If everybody's named Smith, it's really hard to figure out, are we related but also there was all sorts of obligations in the first century in Greco-Roman culture that you, you had friends that you essentially bought. You loaned someone some money, they now owe you that money. And they might do that in all sorts of things. They might pay you back by you know, putting a good word for you with the governor or the king. They might pay you back by you know, bringing you to the nice dinner and putting you in the seat of honor. They might do nice things for you, that if like, things go badly for you, they're going to like, hook you up with a new job. By the way, I'm trying not to talk about the parables in the Scripture that use all those examples. So when they'll come up, you'll see. There's all these examples in which this idea of what's called uh, the, the social network of, the, of philanthropy works. And we don't have that. How many of us know the names of the people who live down the street from us? If you're a really good Midwestern suburban dad, you know the names of the people you share a fence with. But do you know the names of the people they share a fence with? And the ones that they share a fence with? Do the name of the person who makes your ice cream cone? Do you know the name of the firefighter who puts the fire out in your house? Do you know the members of your community? And for the most of us, the answer is going to eventually be no. But that's what the parable pivots on, is the obligation to help each other in a community. That's why the question is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers, who was being a neighbor? Because it's the same question. Who your neighbor is, is also the one who helps you as being a neighbor, okay? So, now we can get into it. Now, this particular word for neighbor comes from the Greek word for to be close to someone, which, of course, is where the word neighbor comes from, that it's the people who are close to you, living beside you. What's interesting is that this, it's only used in this way, talking about who is my neighbor, only in Luke, in other places, it takes a different valence. In Matthew chapter 5, 43 through 48, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. This says, Jesus says, you, shall, you have heard that you should love your friends, but I say to you, you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Which is very interesting when you read the passage above it because it says, you will be persecuted in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted, not might be persecuted, not could be persecuted, are. Present tense, active, indicative. You will be persecuted in the world for following Christ, and you must pray for these people. Because the reverse is happening in there. Persecution in a communal network society means, sorry bro, I can't help you right now. Sorry, bro. I mean, yeah, we're really full up at work. I can't give you a job. Sorry, bro. I mean, I, I put in a good word for you. I mean, you, you know, we've been, we've been tight for a long time, but I just can't risk it anymore. Right? The persecution is the breakdown of the social network. It occurs in the idea of the rich young ruler in the, any of the translations, particularly in Matthew 19, 19. It uses the word, uh, and love your neighbor as yourself is one of the, the ways he frames it. We see in the two great commandments of Jesus, Matthew 22, 34 through 40, and Mark 12, 28 through 34, where the two great commands Jesus is asked, and he says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's used in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 40, in the example of the sheep and the goats, those who are divided, with a very auspicious passage. Uh, Come into my kingdom, or depart from me, I did not know you. 
And both groups say, how is it that we knew you? Or how is it that we didn't know you? And Jesus says to them, you were my neighbor. You brought me water when I was thirsty. You tended to me when I was sick. You visited me when I was in prison. Or you did not do those things to me. In Galatians 5, verses 13 through 15, it says, love one another, using the different conjugation of that word to be close to, And it ends with, do not bite or devour each other, which is a funny little image in a book talking about circumcision. That They're saying that the fighting that he sees in the church is them literally, we won't go there because we're on YouTube. Some of you got that. Okay, so in James chapter 2, verses 8 through 11... It talks about the royal law of love, that we should love our neighbor, and those that love fulfill the law of God's love. Now, I want to pick up on that valence. You're like, why are we talking about neighbor so much? Well, that's what the passage and the, the parable is about. But also because I want you to tell about what the pun is in the parable. Okay, so a guy, and it literally is some guy, some dude, is walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a day's journey, right? He comes around a corner, and there's some, in the words of French, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, some guys who are up to no good. <laughs> and they beat him up and take all of his stuff. They don't take his money, they also take his clothes. And they beat him so badly that he's laying by the road completely un- incapable of taking care of himself. To the point that he looks like he's dead. That becomes important. The death is very important to understand how the parable works. And then we see the next guy. The next guy's a priest. Now, if you know your law, the priests are from a very specific caste. They have to come from a, a specific lineage. In fact, there's some discussion in the Hebrew Bible about which lineage is the actual priestly lineage. But you had to be the son of the right dude, you had to come from the right family, and you had to do everything in the law almost perfectly to the point that you couldn't do some things. You couldn't marry whoever you wanted to, and in this passage, you couldn't go near a dead body because you would defile yourself and make yourself unfit to serve in the temple. So when the priest comes walking down and sees what he thinks is a dead body, he does what he's supposed to do, which is go on the other side of the road so that he doesn't touch it. Because his lineage and his profession depend on it. So that's not the surprising part of the parable. Everyone at the time would agree, oh yeah, 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 the priest has got to cross on the other side of the road. Third guy comes. He's a Levite. Now, the Levites are from the... Basically, if you weren't a priest and you were in this family and you thought you were a priest, you probably were a Levite. You were from the other families, right? And so he also works in the temple. He has to keep himself ritually pure. He has to do certain things. He's not required to not touch a dead body because someone's got to take the dead bodies out of the temple from time to time. Right? So someone's got to touch the, touch the dead body. Can't be the priest, so it's got to be the helper guy, the Levite. Okay? But he does the same thing. He sees the body, thinks, oop, he's dead, crosses to the other side of the road, keeps on going. Again, maybe not surprising, a little bit like, okay, go, you're being a little bit, you know, particular, but, but perfectly fine. The pun is in verse 33, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to the man. Now, typically, In the way we teach the Good Samaritan, we see this as this sort of dichotomy. Jews versus Samaritans. And in many ways, that may have been true. There are some examples in the scripture in which Samaritans don't get the best light in the descriptions of how they work. Right? In fact, the most famous one is John 4. Jesus is passing through Samaria, and he stops at the well because he's thirsty. And, of course, he doesn't get his own water because he's, you know, setting up a thing he's about to do. Sends his, sends his followers into town to buy some food, and a woman comes out. He says, can you draw me some water? And her, quest, her response to him is not yes or no, but, like, why do you want me to get your water? You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. As in, I'm dirty to you. 
Why would you want me to even touch the water? Right? Why aren't you being particular about this? What's interesting here is that Samaria and Judea are neighbors. That's why Jesus passes through Samaria. That's why he can use the Samaritan, because the Samaritan on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho may just be going about his business normally. So let's first take that valence of the Samaritan in the way that we typically, historically, have read this passage. So who is your Samaritan? Who is the one that you would cross the road for? Because that's the pun in the poem, or sorry, in the parable. The priests and the Levites cross away from the dead man, but the idea is that the dead man would have crossed the road from the Samaritan. The, the, the man who's dying would never, ever, the parable sort of implies, have helped the Samaritan, but the Samaritan is helping him. Okay, you see what I'm saying? That's the valence we're going to work with right now. I'm going to change it. I'm going to change it a little bit, but we're going to start with there. So who is your Samaritan? Who is the person that you would never, ever, ever associate with? Is it someone of a different skin melanation status? We may not want to admit that in polite society, but we might cross the road if we see them coming our way. Is it someone of a different political party? I told you the steel boots had to come in today. That you would you spend all of your time lovingly, lovingly nurturing this hatred of those people in government. Perhaps it is a group that is your rival in what we like to call the culture war. The person whose lifestyle is so abhorrent to you that you don't even want them to, I'm going to say it, read a story to your children. Who is your Samaritan? Because they're about to help you out. And the implication is, you should help them out too. You shouldn't want to cross the road. That's your flesh. You need to battle that, Jesus is implying. And you need to not just not cross the road. You need to go help them. Prosper them. Benefit them. And get over yourself. Now, as I have stepped on your toes, and I have dealt with that, there is also an implication of the, the opposite being true as well. Not just that you would benefit the Samaritan, but that you would also mistreat your neighbor. Now we're beginning to shift into the way I want you to understand the Samaritan. The Samaritan is not the other group. The Samaritan is your neighbor already. You just didn't recognize it. And what you've been doing, Jesus says, all the way up to this point, is abusing the guy you share your fence with. You've been burning his lawn. You've been poisoning his dog. You're the bad neighbor. You're the one the HOA needs to come after. So, again, to the expert law, is like, you think you're good. You think you're excellent. And he's like, no, bro, you're the worst one in the neighborhood. You need to re-examine whether you're loving or not. So mistreatment in the, the, ver, the, the mistreatment of the neighbor crops up first in Exodus chapter 2. Those who are not familiar, this is a really fun, I think it's a funny passage myself. Moses goes out one day, and really Moses has been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He's very esteemed, very powerful, very wealthy, you know, has everything on his hands, right? He comes out, 
and he sees an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew slave. And so now he's stuck. Do I, do I stay with the people that are paying my bills, or do I go with the people who are my people, right? And so what he does, he comes out and whacks the Egyptian in the back of the head, doesn't precisely tell us how it is if you watch the Prince of Egypt movie, but I, and that's the way he kills, kills him in the back of the head. Buries the body in the sand. It looks around, thinks, okay, I got away with it, right? Next day, he comes out, two Hebrews are fighting with each other, and he goes, hey, hey, guys, we can't even fight. Goes, are you going to kill us too? He was seen. Who saw him kill the Egyptian that he forgot to account for? The Hebrew he saved. The Hebrew he saved says, Moses is on our team now. He's our guy now. And when they were fighting amongst themselves, they say to him, who are you have that you have been made a leader over us? I'm like, bro, he's already a leader. He's like Pharaoh's step-grandson. He's already been the leader, bro. But, you know, so it's like this one Hebrew, I'm like, and then it gets funnier later because in like five chapters, he then God says, you're the leader of Israel. And he's like, no, you need to tell that other dude over there that I'm the leader now because he was really mad at me about trying to tell him to not kill his friend. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a really funny, like the Bible's really funny to me. But Matthew Chalmers has written a recent article, it came down in about 2020, called Rethinking Luke 10, the Parable of the Good Samaritan as Israelite. And in the passage, he talks about these three characters that are named, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. And he notices something very interesting, that the Samaritan is not really being depicted as the outsider, he's being depicted as the limit case. Now, there's, it's not that much of a difference, but it is important that we understand that. It's all about where the line is. Is the Samaritan outside of Israel or just inside? What's the parable an answer to? Where's the line, Jesus, so that I can stay just inside of it? I'll get right up to the edge, and then I go, I'm sorry, you're outside the line. Oh, I can't help you. But it also pivots on the priest and the Levite. Remember what I told you, how did the priest and the Levite know that they're supposed to be a priest and a Levite? You don't just like go to like priest school and decide that you want to be a priest one day. You had to be born into the right family. What is the accusation of the Samaritans? We don't know if you're part of us. The Samaritans, going to a later part of the Hebrew Bible, are the people that are left the land when Israel comes back from the Babylonian exile. The northern kingdom disappears 200 years before the southern kingdom does. All of them are tromped off into exile themselves, and other people are brought in, and you have half-breeds that form all over the Assyrian Empire. Everyone's mixed because what the Assyrians did, their strategy was, as we conquered people, we're just going to mix them all together. We're going to make you, make you marry all these different people. So eventually in three generations, you don't know who you are and where you came from. And you'll just stay where we want you to and you'll listen to us. We'll just make you Assyrian. The Babylonians come around about 300 years later. They have a different strategy. Their strategy is we're going to take the elites people who can read and write, and we're going to take them off to Babylonia, and they're never going to come back. That's the book of Daniel, by the way. Daniel gets taken to the king's, to the emperor's palace, because he knows how to read and write. Make him a good administrator, we're going to stick him away, he's never going to go back home to his friends. Well, seven years later, God changes the minds of the Babylonians, and they decide to send them back. So the elites come back, and they rebuild Jerusalem. And when they do, there's people who are like, hey, brother, we were waiting for you to come back and build the temple. Aren't you so glad we came back from the exile? And they go, who are you? Oh, yeah, we, we're the sons of the northern kingdom. He goes, no, you're not. We don't know that. You know what? We're going to say, yeah, you're a different group of people now. You're not Israelites anymore. We're going to call you Samaritans. So what Jesus is pivoting on is whether a Samaritan is a Jew. 
So it's not Jews versus Samaritans, it's Samaritans as Jews. Which means that the Samaritan should, at this point, also be kind of thinking about the corpse uncleanness of touching a potentially dead body. Again, remember, let's go back to the parable again, right? Priest comes, dead body, oop, nope, I'm going to stay away from that. Levite comes, oop, dead body, I'm going to stay away from that. Samaritan should be like, dead body, also, you don't really like me, you don't think that I'm your people anyway, so, yeah, I'm just going to say I'm going to stay away. But what does the Samaritan do? The Samaritan says, oh, I got to help this guy. He needs me to help him. Those other two yakadoodles just walked on by. Can't you see? He's dying, right? And then it goes further. It pushes into not just does he help the guy, he goes over and above it to help the guy. See, olive oil and wine are probably medicinal, right? We're getting sort of like a, you know, a balsamic vinaigrette dressing right now. But dum bump right? Medical dressing. Okay, thank you. Some of you are getting these jokes. This is good. I mean, these are good jokes. Anyway, but I don't understand why you're laughing. Um, but it's probably, it's, you know, it's acidic and it has alcohol in it. So it, it, it helps to, you know, clean the wound out. You know, because I don't know about germs at this time. Um, and he binds him up, and then what does he do? He puts him on this animal and takes him to an inn where someone can take care of him. I, I can't stop. I have to go do my business. But this guy needs help, so I'm going to take him to someone who can help him, and I'm going to pay them to do that. What does he say? He gives him two denarii, two days' wages. Right? Like, I pay for two nights at the hotel. You just, can you watch him? Make sure if he needs anything, just, just put it on my bill. I'll be back in some time. When I come back through, I'll settle up with you. The idea is at some point this guy is not dead. He's going to come back to life. And the guy's going to go, yeah, it's paid for. This, this guy brought you on his donkey, and I took care of you, but it's paid for. You don't have to worry about that. And the, some guy just gets to walk free at no cost. He gets saved at no cost. So who are you in the parable? Are you the dying man, yes, who needs to be saved? Are you the obligated priest who doesn't have a choice in the matter. You are required by everything that you have always known to do nothing in this situation. Are you the unobligated Levite who goes, eh, he didn't do it, so I don't have to do it? Or are you the unwanted, the dirty, but merciful Samaritan. And guess what? You don't get to be the good guy. You're not the Samaritan. Ding, ding, ding. Okay? You're the other three. It's like a reverse multiple choice. Right? You're not the Samaritan. You're the other three. So this brings us to another question, which is, what is the cost of our mercy? Let's start with the easy part. What is the cost of us to go to those people we don't want to be associated with? Jesus says very clearly to those who want to follow him, he says, you need to sit down and consider the cost before you follow me. And then he says something even more radical. He says, you need to take up your cross to follow me. Not only do you need to pay the cost, you've got to be embarrassed to do it. Again, in our modern American context, where almost everyone seems to be Christian, or at least everyone's cool with you being Christian, it doesn't seem to be a cost in our society. Go to other places in the world, it's not that true. 
Other places in the world, you come home and you're like, Mom, Dad, I have great news. I'm a Christian now. And they say, get out. Never talk to us again. You are dead to us. And in the societies where you're connected to all these people, you start seeing that no one wants to help you anymore. Or worse yet, you come home and you tell mom the great news and they get out the gun and try to shoot you. Or worse yet, the government arrests you, tortures you until you die. What's the cost of the mercy you have to show? If I can be so bold as to say, helping someone you don't like in our society is not nearly like governmental torture death, okay? You may think that's the worst thing you could ever imagine. I can imagine some really other bad things for you, is all I'm saying. So what are those costs? The cost is our time, right? He had to stop his journey put the guy on the donkey, find the inn, take him to the inn, talk to the innkeeper, go. When he's on his way back, he's got to take more time because he's got to go settle up with the bill, right? It's going to inconvenience him. Samaritan's wife is at home going, you're three days late. I thought you were going to be home on Tuesday. He's like, here's the story. I was going down the thing and I met this guy and I had to help him. She's like, you met this guy and you helped him out? My beloved wife would, of course, never say these things to me. Uh, your wife might not do, her husband might do that. But yeah, we're, you, you just met some dude on the road and you helped him out? You just picked up a hitchhiker? Right? <laughs> it would cost us our resources. Right? He's probably not carrying around a whole big thing of like olive oil vinaigrette. These are probably like his, like first, his basically his first aid kit. Like, if I fall down a ravine and I got to, like, set my own leg and get back on my donkey and go, like, I have a first aid kit. So he's using up his own bandages, and he's using up his own money. And it costs him minimally the inconvenience of the whole process. It's so much easier to just close your eyes and walk on by. so much easier to pretend there's not a problem. And I will admit that that's sort of my response to the culture war in general. You know what? I'm good. You two have fun fighting about whatever thing you're going to fight about. I'm just going to eat Oreo cookies with my four-year-old. But I am called to go and be a peacemaker. I'm called to go into the conflict and resolve it with the love of Christ. And I'm called to inconvenience myself up until death, and including. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus could have just walked on by. He would have been perfectly justified to say, you know what? We gave it a good try. We gave him the law. We gave him our word. We sent prophets to him. They just don't want to do it, Father. Let's just make another world. Maybe this time we'll do robots. Be easier that way. Right? But they didn't. Holy God and Trinity didn't walk on by. They got into the mess. Right? And they inconvenienced themselves. Now, Jesus, of course, finishes the parable, and he turns back to the lawyer. I almost want him to be, like, saying it over his shoulder, like he just stopped and froze, like the guy asked the question, oh, who's my neighbor? And he's like... There was a man, just tells the story, and then he just, like, I feel like dramatically, you know, he would turn here and say, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Because it's obvious, it's not a hard parable, pretty easy, right? 
expert laws trying to trap him. Jesus is like, <laughs> let me make this crystal clear. What does it look like to be a neighbor? And the lawyer's like, again, I feel like it should say something like sheepishly with eyes downcast. The man who showed mercy to him. Go and do that. That's how you love God. That's how you love your neighbor. Go and do likewise. In Romans 15, 15, it opens with, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. The gospel is not just our own individual salvation. It's also the redemption of the world. Jesus is not happy with just saving us. He's building a kingdom for himself. He's taking back what's rightfully his. Like we need to understand that while the gospel is really good news for us because we get to be in heaven with God who loves us and died for us, we also realize that we got to turn around and put our hand to the plow because we're building him a kingdom. Amen. Like, if God is so glorious, why aren't you building him a kingdom? What you waiting for? You should be doing everything all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might to build him a kingdom by loving everyone as you do yourself. Redeeming the world, breaking down the barriers, healing the divisions, Soothing the wounds, repairing creation. You should be building a kingdom for God. And in that, we must understand first the gospel. We can't fix the climate change problem without Jesus. We can't fix the racial injustice without Jesus. We can't end the culture war without Jesus. We can't insert whatever problem you see in the world without Jesus. And we can't save ourselves without Jesus. Fixing the environment fixing racial injustice, fixing the culture war, fixing whatever the problem is, doesn't save us. We're fed from one side or the other. It's both political parties. It's all the news stations. Here's the problem, fix it and we'll be good. And Jesus is like, really? You need me to fix the problem. I found a very interesting illustration just kind of popped up randomly. It was that someone was sitting at a playground watching children play, and there's a little girl who's very concerned that her dress would get ruined because of the rainwater that was on the slide. So she was diligently drying off the slide, and as she finished and gets to the edge, she looks down and is standing in a knee-depth pool of water, and her dress is already ruined. That's what we are. We're so concerned, so fixated on fixing what we think is the problem that we don't actually solve the real problem. We don't get to the root of the problem. So I'm going to close and then pray. We are the dying man or woman in the parable. We were just going about our way and evil, our own evil, is destroying us. 
And we need someone to help us. Our sin has corrupted us, and we are dying from it. The law, represented by the priest, couldn't help us. It could show us what we were doing wrong, but it can't fix the problem. The dress is already ruined. The works of goodness in this world don't help us. They make us feel better. They put a bandage on our broken limb. But the gift of mercy from Jesus saves us. It's funny because Jesus himself is sort of an outsider in his society. He comes from the backwater of Galilee. Galilee is not where the cool kids live. Galilee is Jewish flyover country. It's where the hayseeds live. I'm not looking at this when I say that. Okay, um, it's, it's, where, it's where no one goes, right? It's the town you leave and you never look back to. And he's now debating the like experts of the law who live in Jerusalem, right? And they're like, bro, what do you have for us? And he's like, salvation. <laughs> and they're like, how do you know? And he's like, because I'm God. It's, it's the worst messenger you could think of for the message, right? Why didn't they get the extra law dude to be the savior of the world, right? Everyone believe him. That's the point. It's counterintuitive because our intuition is part of our problem. It's already corrupted. What we think makes sense, if I'm just a good person, God will love me. If I just know the rules and keep them, God will save me. That's what's messed up. And this guy from nowhere is going to save you. So the bad news is, you need saving. And no one except for Jesus can do it. But the good news is, Jesus is perfectly happy to do it. He done did it. He's done doing it. He's going to be doing it. Until he comes back and says, Father, here is the kingdom we have built for you. And puts a big old, you know, like neck stomp on Satan, and death and evil and sin. And then it's finally the way it was supposed to be. And I pray, I hope that you have not just heard that and understood it, that you have claimed that. We get, we get real caught up. I'm, I'm trying not to take too long, but I'm just, the, the Spirit is speaking to me right now. We get real caught up on accepting Jesus. Checking the box. Oh, yeah, I, I, I believe that. But do you? The expert of the law said, I love God and I love my neighbor. Maybe I don't. Let me, let me figure out who the neighbor is to make sure I'm doing that before I say something I wasn't supposed to say. And Jesus flips it around and says, no, 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 no. Love doesn't wait to figure out who the other person is. Love acts first. The Samaritan went and saved the guy. He didn't even know if he was dead or not. He pays the guy. He doesn't know how much money this guy has. He also doesn't know if this guy's going to be like, oh, Samaritan touched me. He doesn't wait to know whether it's worth it. It's worth it. Our sin has separated us from God. But God has restored us to himself. If we believe on him. Not just in him or believe him but we rely on him. Dearest Father, we thank you that you have given us this clear example 
of what mercy looks like. It's so funny that you set yourself into the parable as the unexpected Savior. And we thank you, Lord, that you are an unexpected Savior. We thank you, Lord, that you have come, you have crossed the road to come to us as we were dying, and you paid everything without a second thought for our salvation. And we thank you, Father, that you sent your Son to be the Savior of the world. May we glorify you and build for you a kingdom of mercy and love in this world. For it's your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.